Welcome to another episode of The Bunker. You'll need to know on news and politics seven days a week. I'm Hannah Fern. For decades, housing has been the growing crisis that politicians loved to ignore, but no longer. Finally, the next general election looks to actually be fought, at least partly, on the issue. But with Tories also talking big numbers when it comes to building new homes, has Labour actually said enough to convince voters that it has the real solution for private renters, social tenants and homeowners up its sleeve? In the last 12 months, Harry Scoffin, who leads the Common Hold Now campaign, has been a very vocal critic, both of the government and opposition, over their failure to address the feudal leasehold system. And he's with me now to talk about the whole breadth of housing problems that the country faces and whether Labour is actually up to the job of tackling it. Hi, Harry. Hi, thanks for having me back. So we have just come out of the party conference season. You've been there. You've been talking to everyone um, about leasehold, but also about housing more generally. Labour really seemed to be hammering home to voters that they understand the severity of the housing crisis. What did you make of their message on housing when you were there? Well, it was a sort of audacious land grab on Tory, you know, traditional Tory turf about being the party of home ownership. But I think it was ripe for the taking for Labour because Rishi Sunak, I don't think, mentioned housing once in his speech, you know, to conference. Michael Gove, he did say some positive things about the renters' reform bill and the leasehold reform bill, but these were on the fringes, you know, fringes of the party conference. It wasn't actually in the full conference speech. And there was that sense that Labour want to capture the zeitgeist. And according to some polling that's been done by Redfield and Wilton, the voters that they need to win over at the next general election see housing as the third most important issue. So after the economy and health, so they need to actually get my generation, anyone, I say my generation, anyone under the age of 45 who are suffering huge rents, service charges going through the roof if they're so lucky to have a flat and, you know, affordable housing and waiting list for social housing, I think is 1.2 million people waiting for social home. Yeah, it's huge. So, but do you think that they were convincing in their message? I think they were. And they were really pushing this idea of new towns, you know, buying up massive plots of land using compulsory purchase orders, which means that they're going to be taking on the landowners and basically getting homes built at a much cheaper rate. The question is, is that lots of prime ministers have pushed for new towns or even garden cities. Famously, George Osborne wanted another Welling Garden city, you know, in Ebbsfleet. That never took off. So the question is, have they got the strength in them to face down the vested interests? And obviously, you've got to get that balance between, yes, we've got to build, but not empowering some of the worst predatory companies in this country. Yeah, so the competition is now sort of between Labour and the government on the figures. How many homes can you actually build in the next parliament or two parliaments and how quickly? Labour's figure is 1.5 million homes. That's actually not very far from... Well, I think it's the same as the Tory figure that they basically disowned with the whole national house building targets. But there's a question of... Even if you say 500,000 homes a year, will developers magically just gear towards delivering that? Because they are profit-seeking entities. They have shareholders. And there was a really quite good BBC documentary on this the other day. And there's some brilliant academics at Sheffield who have just done a report, actually, um, where it was showing that basically house builders are coining in huge profits and actually the supply of homes. We've built, I think, 1.4 million homes since 2010, and yet the housing crisis is getting worse. We have, I think... I think it's 1.1 million homes that have got, had planning permission that haven't been built. So it's not as easy as just saying profit-seeking developers are going to get us to the magic numbers. They're not charities. They have other metrics to deliver, and it is profit. And they seem to focus a lot about return as opposed to volume. Mm. Well, when you're talking about building for sale, for private sale now, we're in a 
period where uh, materials are very expensive, labour costs are very high, and also house prices are dropping. So it's, there's even less chance of a profit. So, I mean, when Labour sort of recognises that, when Shadow Housing Minister Matthew Pennycock did a big interview after conference with Inside Housing magazine, that's a trade magazine for people who work in social housing, he said that they'd be relying on the, the social housing sector, so housing associations, who often have large development arms themselves to realise those ambitions. Um do you think that's actually possible or are Labour actually just disguising the fact they're really relying on big developers? As I you think said? there's a worry that there's the country's run out of money. And I know Rachel Reeves, there's this iron discipline about fiscal prudence. But the problem is, is that and there's a really a great guy who was a former number 10 um, housing advisor on this, but also was worked at Shelter, Toby Lloyd, who's really pushed on this idea of new towns. Mm. And he's been saying, actually, it's going to cost billions of pounds to do these properly, but you can actually ring fence that spending outside of normal accounting rules, which is more like how other economies, especially on the continent, do it. So actually, if Labour wanted to be a bit pragmatic and say, look, we are going to be investing for these new towns where there'll be jobs, there'll also be infrastructure, because I think that's a big worry. I think there's this whole argument about NIMBYs not in my backyard, and they're obviously not wanting to worry those voters either. But the question is, is that how do you bring those guys alongside? And that means building with infrastructure. It's not just identical housing estates with nothing else there. And soulless, I think that's the worry, yeah. soulless. You know, you've got to have schools, you've got to have hospitals, you've got to have shops, you've got to build communities. There is a question, though, about new towns being, if Labour want to be all net zero and moving to a cleaner economy, these new towns are going to be in the rural south, so you're going to be reliant a lot on car usage. So there is a question. We've got the least dense cities in the whole of Europe. Why don't we actually build up in the most productive parts where they already have infrastructure, which are the cities? So you have some concerns about the idea of new towns. Are you not well, sure this is what Well, I think it could work. Need? And, you know, obviously Milton Keynes... You know, I know and that's the one that everyone yeah, celebrates. I, yeah, but then there's others like Thamesmead, where it yeah. was just an absolute nightmare. You know, basically, they had to pull it down. And I think with a lot of those new towns, you had these planners that were very devoid from the communities that they wanted to serve, mm. and it was almost like a utopian thing. Milton Keynes obviously worked, but I'm not sure all of the others did. So I think there's a big question. Also, this thing about compulsory purchase order, Matthew Pennycook, he's clearly an exceptional politician is across all the detail on all of housing policy. But there is going to be a question of, will the government have the stomach to take on any human rights challenges? And there's parallels there with leasehold reform, that you've got these powerful landowners that are used to taking all the profits and very little of the stewardship or responsibilities. And then you're basically telling them that you're going to acquire their land for a, for a fraction of what they think it's worth. There will be human rights challenges. And the question is, is Labour going to be strong enough to take on the vested interest. And you're doing it in an, in an age where there is very little money. We've obviously spent crazy amounts in COVID, crazy PPE deals going to Tory donors. They have to be honest with the public. And house builders are not going to necessarily get us to the promised land. They're not going to build those homes. And if they do, it's going to come at a price mm. of poor quality build. And, you know, you've got even the Secretary of State, Michael Gove, coming on the TV saying, well, you've got actually more rights buying a... Uh, what was the contortion that he used? I think dishwasher or washing yeah, machine. White goods. Yeah, yeah. then you do a, a £100,000 home. And that's crazy. So the thing is, we've got to look at it in the round. And I think there's no quick fix. New towns are going to take a lot of planning to get right. Yeah. 
Otherwise, you do just get the soulless, like, just houses just dumped Clumped all over and... everywhere. And it's like there's no facilities around it. And you've got huge drainage issues as well. It's like they just dump the homes and then they move on to the next site. So you've got to really, it's all about placemaking. That means a strategic partnership between the government and the developers, but that the government not being in hock to the developers. I, mean, I think that's the challenge. Talking about the controversy, so you mentioned Ebb's fleet, that's obviously didn't work so well and Thames made incredibly controversial development. Talking about controversies, when we're looking at where you build, the green belt is, an, is now a massive issue. Yeah. So and Angela Rayner and others in Labour faced a backlash at conference by admitting that they felt that building on the green belt was absolutely essential to build enough homes to meet the demand. So what do you think about that? Do you think it's just going to alienate the centre-right voters that they need to win to secure a majority? If they're going to do something on the green belt, as soon as they get into power, they've got to do it then because you can't leave it to the next electoral cycle. And I think with the Tories, given that their heartlands are all in the green belt areas, they couldn't really do it. Whereas I think Labour, given that most of their voters aren't in those areas, they could literally just, and they've said that they're not going to do that, but they could literally just massive development. And it's almost like there's lots of Tory commentators and sympathising policy people that have said to the Tories over the last 13 years that why couldn't they have just basically done a mass house building programme in inner cities? Mm. Because actually most of their voters don't live there or don't, you know, they don't own properties there. They're not worried about their views being spoiled. So it's almost like a bit of a reverse psychology effect because I think that's what Labour probably will do, that they will really do mass house building in those areas where they are the Tory shards or the so-called blue wall. But then I think you've also got to look at, there's a really good study from Nuffield College, University of Oxford, that said that people in this country over 60s actually have a great deal of agreement with our generation, you know, so-called millennials and, and younger, that we do need to build more homes, more affordable housing as well. So I think there's an element of, especially when a lot of these people in the blue wall, they're the parents that are trying to get their kids onto the property ladder in London or in other cities or, you know, around London, and they're thinking, wow, this has got out of control. And I think there's going to be an element of pragmatism from these voters as well, that actually maybe they will get behind a new settlement if it allows their kids to get on the property ladder more affordably without loading themselves up with loads of debt. Because yeah. you've got these crazy long mortgages that are taking off now. And it's kind years of like, sometimes. Yeah, and it's not bringing years. down the, the price of the, of the homes. And I think now you've got to go back to 1876 for a time where average earnings were this wide from actual house prices. So I think it's now eight or nine times average salaries. And in London, it's 14 times the London salary to afford the average house price, which is just crazy. So the fact is there needs to be something major. And there is a question, is new towns enough? And the fact is cities, there's the agglomeration effect. You're, you're saving on sapping commutes that are very costly. You also have a better quality of life generally. And also when it comes to boosting the productivity of the economy, that that's going to go up because people are saving on those sapping commutes that are draining. And actually, if we want to, you know, build back better or, or help with a net zero, we need to be reducing car usage. The fact is that does mean living closer to where the existing infrastructure is. And I think there's a worry that the new towns, they're great ideas in principle. And Gordon Brown was promising a generation of eco towns. But the problem is then it just meets the institutional inertia of central government, Treasury may be saying it's too expensive, it doesn't happen.
if you look at the stats about where people want to live, especially younger people, millennials, and this is global, not yeah. just in the UK, they actually do want to live in cities for all the reasons that you've described. Yeah. So what's stopping us doing the density well, it, in, is it yeah. planning, do, is it the it's planning It's leasehold reform? because the fact is when you buy a flat, you don't own it, you don't control those costs. And Hamptons recently put out data and obviously they're an estate agency, they have an interest in talking up the market. But even they've admitted that service charges have doubled within the last five years and leaseholders in England are paying £7.6 billion in service charges. Think of that money that could go towards setting up bona fide businesses, you know, building a family, actually participating in the consumption economy. So the fact is, we've got the least dense cities in the whole of Europe. We also have the second lowest proportion of flat ownership in our housing stock after in Europe after Ireland. And obviously, Ireland also had the leasehold inheritance. The fact is, there's nothing more fundamental than being in control of someone's own home, own costs, and not being locked in to these rip-off merchant mm. providers. And th the fact is, of all the people that lose money selling a home now, even though leasehold is 20% of the housing stock in England, 51% of those losing money when they sell their home are leaseholders. So this is a huge systemic issue. But the fact about home ownership is it's not always just the cost price. It doesn't stop when you get your keys to your new flat. It actually is a whole experience of home ownership. And if you're leveraged to the hill, you need to be able to at least control the, the running costs of that flat. And England and Wales are the only countries in the world where they have this system where you buy a flat, you don't own it, and you've got a landowner who you may never meet in your life who might be in some tax haven who's just basically rent-seeking and taking off all these fees. So I think if the government, they're saying that they're going to do a leasehold reform bill in the King's speech, we'll have to wait and see. Labour, I have to admit, massive credit to Angela Rayner because she did come out and say they're going to end this, you know, middle ages system. But the question is, is that it's not just like little things here and there. It's about a whole strategy. Having said that, I think Labour, of all the parties, seem most interested in trying to take it as a holistic thing, you know, and they've even come out and said Rachel Reeves in her you know, keynote speech in the conference was that they will be taxing overseas buyers more. Yeah. You know, in Canada just this year have now actually gone even further. They had an overseas buyers levy for a number of years, but they're now saying that for two years in law, this is Trudeau, he's banning any non-resident buyers basically from buying any property in Canada. Obviously, famously, New Zealand in 2018 did that. But you've got places like Singapore, where they've now put up an overseas buyer's levy of 60%. I think ours is 2 or 3%. It's puny. And I think you've got to also just think, build, build, build. But then you've got to also cool the demand side as well. Talking of legislation, let's hope the leasehold bill yes. is there. I hope so too. As some listeners probably know, I got massively caught out by this and lost a large amount of money when we sold off my flat. So um, I hope to see that. Um, but the Renters Reform Bill is also about to receive its second reading uh, next week. If it passes to the frustration of, let's be honest, quite a lot of backbench conservatives, many of whom are actually landlords themselves. It will give private tenants a lot more protection against things like no-fault eviction. Um, it, it gives them more rights to complain and so on, and also um, some security in their home. Do you think Labour will also commit to those same changes for renters? 
Or well, should they, they go even further? Well, that's the thing. They have, and it's quite interesting. Even on leasehold, they're saying that they're going to support the government's law commission reports. But it, I, I think what's going to happen is the government will bring in the renters' reform bill, and then Labour rather sensibly will say, well, we're going to review that in two or three years' time. Let's wait for the legislation to bed in. There's going to be an ombudsman where it's going to try and move a lot of these disputes out of the overwhelmed courts and tribunal mm. system, move it to an ombudsman where some of these judgments are going to be binding on all the parties. You're also going to have a digital portal, which means that renters will, for the first time, have almost like, you know, when you're in an Uber and you get to review drivers, that there will finally be some level of transparency that before you sign a rental agreement, you know who you're going into bed with. How that landlord has behaved. Yeah, so there'll be a rating service. And also there's this other thing that Gove's really pushing on about the decent home standard, which is a legacy of the new Labour government with social homes. But rental homes are like some of the worst in terms of mould, damp, all of those other issues, heat, you know, a lack of insulation. They perform worse than social housing, which is very age stock in some cases. So they're trying to apply that standard to rental homes. And obviously there's a big debate in the Tory party about, well, is this going to restrict supply of rental homes altogether? And that's a big risk. It is driving some landlords away. There is no doubt about that. Perhaps not as many as some... Tories who and oppose, yeah, yeah who, and lobbyists who oppose the legislation complain about. But as part of my journalism, I'm I'm sort of a, a quiet member of a lot of landlord Facebook groups, and people are selling because of it, which does raise the question about how responsible they were as landlords mm. in the first place. So maybe we're better off that they're leaving. Yeah. Um, but while numbers are well, stretched... Well, there's no rent controls. And I think Labour, I know it was under Lisa Nandy, but they were very clear. And I think that's the same position. They're not looking at rent controls, despite Andy Burnham, you know, Mayor of Manchester keen, and Mayor yeah. of London really gagging for these rent controls. So I think Labour are obviously on a tightrope because they don't want to offend a lot of middle class I hate this word, boomer voters, that they will need to win over. And I think it's just a case of if this bill gets through, and the thing is there is a huge amount of internal opposition within the ruling party to this renters' reform bill, particularly about ending no-fault evictions. But if it does get through, I think Labour will be a case of let's wait and see, let's see how those reforms bed in. And it's a bit like planning. There are people out there that want the whole planning system basically ripped up and Mm -hmm. a kind of zonal system, which Robert Jenrick really wanted to push in, where it basically said these areas are ripe for building. As long as you make the buildings look beautiful, however subjective that is, then you're just given almost automatic planning permission. Uh, Labour are saying we don't want more chaos in this planning system. What we want to do is fund planners, fund local authorities and make sure the system we've already got works better. Labour are talking a lot about two things. The first is the dream of home ownership, appealing to, you know, all of those who aspire to that. And then the second is the desperate need for a new generation of social housing for the over one million families sitting on that list, many of whom are stuck in the private rented sector paying exorbitant rents with very little support from the local housing allowance, which is the benefit that that supports uh, rent for those on low incomes. How can they kind of bring those two Mm. messages together? Are they diluting their message on housing by trying to to, to appeal to both those audiences? Because the thing is, Inside Housing, I know we're doing another shout out to them, but they've been running a campaign trying to get all the major political parties to commit to delivering 90,000 social homes a year. And, you know, have a lot of time for Labour and Matthew Pennycook, but he's come out and said, and it's obviously a leadership position that we cannot make that commitment right now because 
presumably they've not said it, but the state of the finances, it wouldn't be credible. We don't want to make promises that we can't deliver. And I think the problem with the housing crisis is that whenever our politicians ever take note of it, they do make some crazy promises that then don't deliver. And with the social housing, they obviously want to try and break from the Corbyn era where it was very much very radical on social housing. We're going to have a huge glut of uh, affordable council homes. And now it's kind of like they're having to move a little bit away from that message. And it probably is a state of finances. Possibly. I think there's definitely something interesting to be said about a psychological shift, though, in what people aspire to. Yeah. Because... There are a lot of people who are, let's say, now over 30 but under 50 who will never be able to afford to buy and yet always had been brought up with this idea that they would be. Home ownership is still a goal, but it becomes less and less likely unless we end up with these insane mortgages that run till you're 80, which Mm. is happening. So I think it's interesting. Will Labour have to steer a conversation that actually people need to start to aspire to social housing again, like mm. they did in the 40s. And you mentioned Michael Gove is out there making a lot of the same arguments that Labour are making, and that's quite an interesting position to find ourselves in. It's not something I've seen in 20 years of covering housing. Well, the housing. thing is, he's kind of really taken on the kind of developer cartels, particularly on cladding, kind of making extrajudicial threats in a way, and then following through on it, saying, if you don't sign these remediation contracts with me, with the government, you'll be blocked from planning. And it got a lot of people, the sort of Yimby bro activists, really upset. But no one has a God-given right to build rubbish. You know, and I think the fact is, Gove is pushing that argument, but we're coming up to a government really 13 years in power, and they do come across tired. You've got the think tanks that are pushing, you know, Policy Exchange on Monday was coming out saying we've got to basically abolish leasehold, which was a huge thing. But the fact is, is that... The whole model of relying on private developers and an ever depleting number of them. And I've got the data here because it really is fascinating where it said in 1980, there were over 10,000 SME house builders building 57% of all housing. Now, guess what? It dropped down to by 2020, 10%. Wow. Yeah. Of all housing was done by SME builders. So you need that competition. At the moment, there's not really a market. And the fact is you've got a few guys that are owned and it's not trying to make a bogeyman, but you've got offshore interests that are the majority shareholders of these volume house builders. And it's all about what is their return? What is the margin? It's not about the volume of homes that are being built. So I think Labour, they're having to compete on different levels of messaging. It's one minute, yes. We're not going to rock the apple cart. You know, we're not going to bulldoze, you know, down and, we're, and and concrete over the green belt. But then quietly in the background, they feed little stories like to the Financial Times earlier this year saying, we're basically going to stop giving windfalls to landowners. You know, when planning permission happens, they go up by two, three hundred percent, the value of that plot of mm. land because of the, you know, the value that's going to be yielded from that land. And they're, you know, they're doing different messages there. And I get that. They don't want to scare some of their business backers. But at the same time, I think they are genuine that this is emergency. And it's gone on for so long. And, you know, 1876 was the last time the average uh, earnings were actually this far away from average house prices. So the fact is, you're going to need very radical interventions. Overseas buyers levy, absolutely put that up and but be imaginative with it because it that alone isn't going to cool prices. So why don't you say all the money raised from that goes into building social housing? Thank you very much, Harry. We covered Nothing a lot. Me. There's so much to grapple with. Thanks for having me.
If you enjoyed this episode, then please consider supporting The Bunker on Patreon. For £3 a month, you can listen to the show without ads, plus loads of extra benefits. I'm Hannah Fern. Thanks for listening. The Bunker was written and presented by Hannah Fern. The producer was Chris Jones, with audio production by me, Simon Williams. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis. The group editor is Andrew Harrison. With music by Kenny Dickinson and artwork by James Parrott, The Bunker is a Podmasters production. Podmasters.